Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. Today, I am so excited to share with you Mike Rohde, and I hope I am pronouncing your name correctly. Perfectly, perfectly. Awesome, awesome. Who is a master sketchnoter and someone that I have just enjoyed watching his work over the years, so I'm so happy to share it with you today. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks, Heidi, for bringing me on the show. It's a real blast to be here with you. Yeah, so, you know, it's just been so fun. I mean, me, I... I also had, you know, quite a history with working with sketch notes and using the visual way of communicating for, I used it as sort of a side tool in my mm-hmm. toolkit when consulting, but it was so great to sort of learn from your masters and learn from you in that process, just watching how it's evolved. And for me, I've always been digital in that space, but I think more and more people are evolving into the digital space. I'd be curious to hear what your experience has been with that and how that has evolved the whole space of visual communication. Sure, sure. I think I've got uh, some interesting insights, I think, having done both of them and seeing other people having done both and being able to compare notes and see what are the advantages of each side, right? Absolutely. And I just realized some of you out there might not actually know what sketchnoting is. So let's back up a little bit here. Mm -hmm. And from the master himself, can you explain a little bit what sketchnoting is for our audience? Sure thing. So sketch notes are pretty simple. Um, It's the notes that you already take. You're simply adding visuals to them. And then you're focusing on the big ideas. If I I were to boil it down to a sentence, that would be it. Basically, what it means is you're still writing text. So you don't you don't abandon text for them. But you you know, you're doing handwriting to write that text. And in addition, as you're listening for big ideas, you're actually drawing out images that may appear in your head or maybe are on the slides of the presenter as another source of reference as well as, you know, maybe you're emphasizing lettering. So you're doing some big lettering or you're making it look like typography. Maybe you've got certain icons that you use frequently that help you remember certain key ideas, and you can use those as well. I kind of like to call it Notes Plus. So it's like the notes you take now with more visuals to them. And then they're they're maybe actually simpler than the notes you may take now in that I focus on the big, important ideas that you can actually apply. But then feeling, I think a lot of times... People feel, and I know I felt this way, this is what started it, was that I felt obligated to write everything down that I was listening to. It was either all or nothing, right? And especially if you're on a keyboard, you feel maybe this pressure that you should be writing notes. The problem with that is you're writing verbatim notes and you're not necessarily analyzing the information that you're hearing in the moment. You're just writing it down. And then you've got the added burden afterwards of digging back through all of it and figuring out what is valuable. So it pushes the analysis into the moment. Uh, whether it's analog or digital, it's done both ways. Uh, and it makes use of all these visual tools that I think everyone has capacity for, no matter what their drawing skill level. And then finally, I'll say that it doesn't depend at all on your drawing skills. So many people will maybe come to it and say, hey, I'm not a great artist. Can I sketch note? And I'll say, absolutely, because it's more about capturing ideas. And if you can do make it beautiful, that's just, you know, the cherry on top of the, of the pie, right? So I think uh, it's really important to focus on the simplicity of it. It's capturing ideas in a visual way with supporting words. 
Uh, and it's also focusing on not drawing beautifully, but drawing functionally, drawing so that when you look at it later, you can deconstruct what your thoughts were in the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful, of course, the master explains it the best. But I think one of the things that I really appreciated in learning the art of sketchnoting was the power of the stick figure, you know, and just, it, it doesn't have to be proportionally correct, but it has to be a representation of something. And the simpler, the better, because if you start going into great detail, you're focusing in on the detail rather than what's being said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm curious for you, because I, I know that uh, you started working with uh, notebooks, physical notebooks. How has your work changed as you use technology? What makes that different now? Well, actually, to go a little bit farther back, I've always kind of used notebooks, even since I was a kid. I've maintained it through college, even into my professional life. But the interesting thing was, as I became a professional designer, I started using more and more technology as the desktop publishing revolution took hold in that space. I grew up through that and sort of adopted technology as a great amplifier of my ability to design work. And for whatever reason, I'd sort of come to this place where I just was typing my notes most of the time and not really writing them anymore. And when I did write them, I almost treated it as though I was at a keyboard. I tried to write everything down that I was hearing. So I ended up in this trap where I was really good at note-taking and I hated every minute of it. Not a good place to be, right? So my challenge was to actually go analog at that time because I felt like it changed my perspective on note-taking. So the, really the purpose of analog wasn't necessarily that digital was bad. It was just that it put me in a different mindset and I needed to break from that. So for many years, I was strictly analog with my note-taking. And I would still, of course, type notes too, but for different purposes and not in the same way. But recently... Uh, with the iPad, the advent of the iPad and the surfaces are also great tools uh, for Microsoft. This ability to actually have a paper-like experience with technology was kind of a game changer. Now, I, I particularly focus on the iPad Pro and the Pencil. Um, I quite like it because of the, the form factor of it is quite small. It's easy to travel with. And there's many applications that support my drawing. And I would say that I sort of always weigh like what are the benefits of the technology? Because paper is technology, too. It's just very old technology, right? It's a different way of looking at technology. And I don't look at one sort of replacing the other one. So when the iPad Pro came out, or even the iPad, I never looked at it as like I would never use paper again. It's like, oh, wow, I've got another new tool that I can use, right? I had one tool. Now I have two tools, and they each have different properties. So as an example, paper has this property of feeling, right? You have the feel of the paper, you don't need batteries. You don't have to worry about forgetting to charge up your notebook when you go to take notes, right? It's there. Uh, now, you may run out of a pen, but you can have a couple of pens and maybe they're a dollar each, right? So it's not an expensive thing either. So on that side, you know, you've got this more of an experience. You've got the reliability of paper and sort of the, the touch and feel of it. It's sort of very physical. Which to digital, you've got the advantage of I can make mistakes go away with an undo or an erase, or grabbing it and moving it. There's all kinds of controls that you have depending on the software. Um, it's also immediately shareable, right? So you can share that to someone. If they say, hey, you made a mistake, I can quickly go and fix those errors. And there's you know unlimited storage, so I can have lots of information on one device. Whereas if I were to try and replicate that with uh, notebooks, I could have I could be lugging lots of notebooks around for reference. So those are probably the two biggest comparisons between them. And I sort of see a middle ground and that's all the technology that's coming up around making analog things digital. So things like Evernote or even uh, very excellent Apple Notes, 
as well as OneNote for Microsoft, right? So there's this, this variety of tools and probably many others I'm not considering where I could make a sketch note in an analog book, take a photograph of it with my camera, with an amazing camera on it, and the tool that I put it into, let's say Evernote, is actually scanning it and doing OCR on the text as best I can. And now I can search it. So I've got the benefit of the analog feeling and the benefit of the digital, you know, your approach the best, which I think is fantastic because 10, 15 years ago, we had one option and that was paper and very laborious ways of scanning it and, you know, all the difficulties around it. Now we've got all the options. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I love that you brought in that other piece because that's something that I used a lot while I was doing my dissertation and just the ability to be able to sit there, take notes and having that really tactile on paper and to be able to scan it into my Evernote, and then I'd be able to organize it and tag it so that it became part of sort of my whole project management, if you will, but in a way that integrated that that analog with the digital and really facilitated better productivity, but also a better result. Because you know before that, it was like you have notebooks and notebooks of things, and to actually find where that note was that had that, that piece that was just critical from that lecture in some random place. You know, you're having to sort of dig back in your own brain to find where and when that particular piece was, when it's relevant to use it later. But I think it's really exciting to have the opportunity to be able to do that. And with the images piece integrated, it just makes it right. so much, it sort of triggers, oh, now I really remember that whole talk. It wasn't just, okay, mm -hmm. searching for the, the words, the text. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of, I, I think a lot of times because you're mis mixing the verbal and the visual together, it sort of, I guess it bakes itself into your brain a little bit better than if you did one or the other. So if you, maybe you find a term that you're looking for and now it's like, oh, that's right. I drew that picture while I was listening to it. A lot of times, you know, the old adage, a picture's worth a thousand words. You can reconstruct, you know, your frame of mind by looking at that image. And then combined with the wording, you sort of, you got a lot more detail to work from to, you know, resurrect or, bring back those ideas that you had in the moment the best you can uh, with the memory you have. So I think there's definitely advantages. And then now there's even other tools. So we talked about a few of those things like the rocket book, which is this really interesting idea. It's a notebook that you write in with um, erasable pens. There's one that's permanent, but there's also one that you can write in this notebook. And when you're done, you put it in the microwave with a cup of water and you, I don't know, you make all the ink erase. It basically disappears and you start over with the book. And the beauty is they've integrated this uh, Evernote and Dropbox and other support systems into the tool that when you're done with your drawing, you sort of check the box for the places you want it to go. And you've, if your account is set up and you take a photo with the tool, it automatically sends it to those places and I've got backup. So I think the big trick for a long time with analog was uh, if you lose the original, you're really in trouble, right? It's, it might last you 100 years, but if it gets burned in a fire or you drop it in the ocean, you know, that original is gone forever. So... Now you've got the advantage of being able to take photographs as you work. So every at the end of the day, you can take a photo of all your pages and have them stored somewhere. So, you know, if that book gets lost, now you've got a backup and maybe redundant backup. So it seems to me like we're at the best of all possible worlds. And, you know, some really interesting things are, I think, coming ahead for visualization using tools like this to capture ideas. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. As you mentioned, the Rocket Pro, for those of you that can't see us, I just popped mine up. That's been my latest sort of favorite tool when I'm going to, mm -hmm. 
to seminars as I sit there and I take my notes there, take the picture of it, it goes right into my Evernote. It's all super easy, but I don't have to have five notebooks. It used to be nine, have, right. you know, a whole bookshelf full of all these different notebooks. Mm-hmm. And now I just make it digital when I'm done and it erases and I use the same book again. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it kind of feels a little kinder to Mother Earth while we're doing that. Right, um, right. It's it, it's sort of caters to what your goal is, right? There's all these, now there's all these different spectrum of options based on what your goals are, right? I mean, there's another one, Moleskin and Livescribe have a very similar product where they have a pen, which actually records the position on the page and saves it digitally. And additionally, I think the Livescribe particularly will record the audio. So if you're in meetings all the time, like I'm a user experience designer. At times we go on studies where we talk to people and we need to be able to resurrect that discussion. Maybe my notes are pretty good, but they have a recording that's also synced to all the notes that I'm writing and to watch the in the player that as I'm writing notes, I hear the audio and I see the things that I didn't write down as much as the things I did. For some professionals or people that need to capture information, authors, that could be a really valuable tool, you know, that's now available, right? It's so all these slots in the spectrum of what do you want, what do you want to achieve? Now you can actually fill it in with these tools. For the most part, I think in almost any way. And there's so many, there's sort of overlap there. I'm thinking, I mean, I used mm-hmm. the LiveScribe system as well while I was doing my PhD work in the earlier stages for the things that didn't actually accurately, because I was writing sloppily or whatever, mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. go over perfectly. I could plug that audio into Dragon and Dragon would give me a second version so I could compare the mm-hmm. two and see what, you know, what did, what did I miss and listen to it again. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different other great tools that you can overlap to, I mean, now, of course, you can send off your audio to transcribe and get sure. even more accurate. Yeah. But, you know, this was not even that long ago. We're talking, you know, five years ago, and it has come so far mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, anybody can do sketch notes digitally and share them with the world. And now we're seeing so many more usages of them in marketing communications right. and strategic communications within organizations. Can you share a little bit about what you've seen in that space of the use of sketchnotes? Sure. I think it's continuing to expand. And what I, what's gets me most excited is when I wrote the book way back in 2012, doesn't seem like that long ago. And at the same time, forever ago, right? So I had the first book in 2012, the handbook and the sketch workbook uh, a couple of years later in 2014. You know, I didn't know where this would necessarily go. I wrote it as a way to describe what worked for me and hope that others could benefit from it and share as many variety of work in the books of other people. So you can see the breadth of what they were doing. Um, what I've found is over time, people are starting to adopt it in their own ways. So I've seen, uh, I have a friend who's a PhD physicist and he uses it to capture talks at his installation where he works. He has these amazing scientists coming in and speaking on leading edge topics. So if he's willing to put a little work in and research ahead of time what they're coming to talk about, he says that it, it's a night and day difference in his note taking to capture the ideas that they talk about. Uh, and he said it's changed his whole life, right? This approach to taking notes around the science that he's interested in. So that's, you know, a very common thing is to capture, you know, talks or your meeting notes, the things that mean something to you, maybe research for a book or a PhD. But there's some really interesting ways to use it in brainstorming. So if it's you as an individual trying to come up with an idea for, well, what book should I write? Maybe this is another way to make this visual capture, you know, helpful, whether it's you individually or maybe you're teaming up with someone, you have to come up with a marketing plan. Well, together, you as uh, you and another person or a team can use these ideas on a whiteboard or a big sheet of paper. So there's another application. I've seen people using it for 
capturing processes. So like if there's some training that you need to give, rather than giving someone a really boring gray Word document, right, you can now give them a drawing that shows them where is the button in relation to the other button that you need to push. Uh, where on the machine is the switch to turn it on? Like those kind of things can now be illustrated with just a little bit more effort, right? And it now becomes sort of a visual verbal document that's got more richness to it. I personally have done lots of travel sketch notes. So when I travel, I'll take notes. And at the end of the day, when the kids are sleeping, I'll sit at the hotel desk that's usually in most rooms and I'll reconstruct the day from photos, from things I remembered and noted down, and I'll reconstruct it for my memory. But then my kids now have a memory as well. And then finally, another example is uh, food. So sometimes I go to really special places like I've been to Chez Panisse in uh, Berkeley. And it was a really, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. So I brought, I have to bring my sketchbook along and sketch noted the dinner. And it has a different perspective than just taking photos. It's really a personal description. You can add information. And I found when I look at them again later, it brings back the scene, vivid detail for me, much more than a photograph does. Even though the photograph has got more detail in some ways, that act of producing it is actually very valuable to me. And then finally, you know, you can capture media. So books, if you're reading books, you can use this method to expand beyond simply writing notes to drawing the concepts that you're seeing or copying it from the book, you know, into your own book as an example, or listening to podcasts, watching, you know, TV shows or movies, if you're interested in drawing meaning from them, documentaries. So it's, it's almost endless in some ways in the ways it can be used to capture the things you're thinking or the things you're thinking about, which might be someone else speaking. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's such a powerful tool. I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of people who really take to sketchnoting, I mean, I was a doodler in the sidelines of my notebooks and all through school. And it was just, uh, you know, and even in business meetings, it was sort of drawing little pictures to actually give permission, not only permission to yourself to do that, but real, you know, to really respect the power of what that is because it's helping your brain process visually. And I did a study actually while I was doing my dissertation. We actually compared, there was, a, you know, we had this uh, group of MBAs and we were in uh, Geneva and we were comparing the results from, I did, we were doing a business strategy workshop and I ran a different part of the same group using sketch notes and visual facilitation techniques, and somebody else used sort of a computer software piece, and then another mm. group actually used flip charts. And we were looking at the different results from okay. that. And it was just fascinating to see sort of how the brainstorming was different, how the engagement was different in terms of people feeling part of the process, you know, people really recognizing what the bigger picture was all of those different components. And I think, you know, the more that we understand the power of that visual piece and acknowledging and respecting what that piece has and what role it plays is, I think it's really important. And I think that it's, everybody has different learning styles and, and communication styles. And if you can integrate those things when you're working with teams, it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I do as a user experience designer is I work with software developers, particularly. A lot of times we'll come into a situation, we have a feature we need to build. Nobody knows how we're going to build it when we start. But we go in a room and we have a whiteboard. And typically I'll just lead the whiteboarding because, you know, it's the way I think. Um, so we'll talk about the feature and we'll look at maybe samples of maybe how it was done elsewhere. And then we'll just start having discussions. And as ideas start popping up, you know, I'll capture those ideas on the whiteboard. And we found it super valuable to have that visualization happening 
in real time with all the people in the room. We try to bring all the stakeholders, so business, project managers, the developers that are going to build it, and then myself. And we sort of have this balanced space where we all have input into it. We can see the five or six different ways we can approach this problem and then almost immediately pick one or maybe two to try and mock up and see, do they hold up when we actually build them as software? The value there is like, as an example, the business knows what they need, so their land fulfills our requirements, but also the developers are there. Often developers are not included in this kind of work. You know, they're just handed, here's all the specs, build it. But they might say, well, you know, we can build it the way you're telling us to, and it would probably take, you know, 100 hours. But if we just change the perspective and maybe we did it this other way, maybe we cut that development time in half, right? So having their immediate feedback helps guide the team towards better solutions and different solutions and opens opens up the opportunity for creativity. So that's been a very valuable tool. And eventually, as we start, you know, the team gets comfortable, the business and the product owners and the developers will come up to the board and draw their ideas to express them. So it's a, you know, it's an open encouraging if it's uh, done well, where people are actually welcomed to come up and draw the best they can to express their ideas. So that's, that's really exciting to work in a team like that. I agree. I think it's an exciting thing to watch that transition occur and, and really how powerful that visual piece is. And especially now that, you know, our phones are such great cameras, we can capture those things and share them with the team so that it lasts beyond the time when the whiteboard is erased. Right. So there's some really great aspects of that as well. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Oska Wellness. When pain stops, life begins. Oska Pulse mimics the body's own recovery processes to relieve pain, muscle stiffness, and inflammation using optimized pulsed electromagnetic field technology. Pemp to encourage recovery at a cellular level so you can get back to life. And I got to tell you, this thing works so well, my husband and I are fighting over it. So I highly recommend you take a moment and try it out. They have all kinds of options for checking it out, and they've even given us an opportunity to share a discount with you, $55, by using the 2BU code on the Oscar Wellness site. You can check out the show notes to get more details. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. Today we have Mike Rohde here, our sketch note master. You know, we've talked a little bit about sort of how technology and sketch noting has evolved and sort of where it's best placed. I would love to spend the second half of our show talking a little bit about how you have seen, because you're both, you know, a user experience designer and a sketch noter and how you've seen technology change those different industries and the way that you do your work. Well, that's a really fascinating question. I was around at the beginning in the design space as a print designer way back in the eons of time uh, when desktop publishing came into the scene. I was I feel really fortunate that I crossed over this time and I saw the transition firsthand. I learned in school how to do everything manually. So drawing with ink pens and uh, we would do some typesetting, which was starting to move into technology. We would uh, request type and, and get images, you know, photographs. And then we would wax them and stick them on these boards and, you know, try to make them perfect, send them to, you know, a printer who would then take a photo that makes a negative and that would make the plate to run the image, right? That was high technology at the time. To seeing, you know, these little machines coming in that started replicating all that manual work that we were doing in a digital way was much more controllable, very precise. It gave us some controls too, like the power 
as an example, in the old days, you would send out text and you would specify how big the fonts would be and how wide the columns would be. Like it was lots of work to specify your your uh, wording, just that part. And then it would come back and invariably there'd be something you did wrong. You measured wrong or you gave the wrong size. Now you've got to send it back and get it back again. So there's this whole time component. And then when you have the pieces together, now you've got to manually you know, wax it and put it on the page, make sure it aligns, all this kind of hard manual work, which was fun. But when you see a tool like, you know, Macintosh running PageMaker or Quark, being able to do this stuff almost naturally and then being able to reflow the text, change the sizes you want, bring in images and resize them, that power to control everything was really a mind blower for me to see that power. And I immediately was on board. My father was very forward looking and had computers in the home. So we were not afraid to look at computers or use them. So I immediately took to this uh, medium and became very fascinated by it and dove right in head first. So I've always been involved in this. And then when the web revolution came along, I sort of was able to see that coming and started doing some work uh, on web design. So really early bad web design, but I was in on that and was really excited about the opportunity. So again, there I had a chance to see that transition from purely print to, you know, this web idea. What do you do with the web? The, some of the websites we saw initially were so rudimentary. It's almost laughable now, but you see the power of the idea of the internet and what it's done to the whole world, right? It's changed everything and made things different. And then, you know, being here for the advent of mobile devices like the iPhone and then all the devices that came after. And as we talked about, the kind of powerful computers they are and the cameras that they have and the positioning with GPS and the communication ability almost anywhere in the planet, like the combination that I think a lot of times we're just so used to it, we forget exactly how powerful and how radical it really is. When you go back in time and you think about what you were able to do and what you can do now, it's not even a comparison. It's <clears throat> the last thing I'll say is I always sort of envied like older people who lived through like the turn of the century. Like, you know, my grandfather lived from, you know, the late 1800s into through world wars and all this stuff. And I thought, oh, I so, I so envy that they got to see so much change. And now here I am, maybe I've seen more change than they have in my life, right? And it's sort of sneaks up on you. You don't realize how much change you've gone through until you start looking backwards. So I've been excited about it. Um, I think it's got great benefits. I always feel like I, because I came from this more analog time, I'm always sort of seeking to temper it a little bit and to realize not everything about technology is a benefit, right? We're starting to see some of that, you know, technology as far as social media being used in negative ways, right? That not everything is positive. And I think sometimes too, the thing that I noticed from a design perspective particularly was because I learned to do this analog method, I did lots of moving things around. I did lots of sketching to solve problems. And I think a lot of times now designers specifically come out of school and they pretty much jump on the curve right away because that's natural for them. And they never really experiment with drawing or sketching, whether it be analog or even on an iPad, right, to, to figure things out. And I think the thing I believe is often when you do that, you lock yourself into the way the software was designed to work. And it now limits you to what the software can do. You're not expanding beyond this, the boundaries of the tool, where if I come in with sketches and ideas that came from a whiteboard or a pad of paper or an iPad, where I don't have any limits, like anything's possible, I'm more likely to extend beyond those boundaries and maybe push them. Maybe I'll find that the tool that I'm using is limited in some way. I have to find a creative way to do that thing I want to do. But I think the danger is a lot of times when we limit ourselves to following just what the app provides to you, you tend to just do what the app provides, right? It sort of sets the table. And maybe I don't want to work on that table. Maybe my table idea is bigger, right? So I think that's the, the counter to it is this idea that 
there's more to it. And sometimes the easiest solution is the simplest, most analog technology solution, getting a napkin and drawing out the idea instead of fighting to do it in my phone, right? So maybe the solution is to just take a picture of the thing I drew. So there's ways technology can be used, but you have to think about how it's applied and not be so straight-jacketed straight into a certain way of things working that you can't think around and go outside those. You know, as you're talking, it's it's reminding me of, you know, when I was doing my book, I was trying to do a mind map and somebody had suggested some mind mapping software for me. And I'd, I was used to doing it just on a big sheet of paper in a total, you know, manual way. And I got so frustrated with this software because it was like, it's not letting me add this little line in the way that I want it. And, and it was, you know, it sort of brought up all this traumatic experience of old, doing old school hard coding HTML. And then all of a sudden, all these tools that sort of did it for you. And I knew just enough to mess them up because I would go in and go, well, it doesn't do what I want it to do, but I can to get into the source code and I can mess around with it here. And I would do just enough so that when I sent it back to my virtual assistant, she'd be like, what did you do? Because <laughs> they don't know how to hard code anymore. They don't know what any of the HTML coding is. So I may have done it correctly, but it didn't, you know, it just didn't gel with within the box, within that framework. And, or I may not have, who knows? I mean, it's been long enough that, I, you know, long enough ago since I was doing hard coding HTML that, you know, maybe... Those codes don't even work anymore because it's we're on HTML. I don't even know what, know what number or whether they even use that term anymore. But it is it is fascinating. Sort of as a creative person, you want to work outside of the box. You don't want to be restricted by these boxes. And I think it's important to take that, you know, into consideration when you look at the tools. It's not an absolute. Just like there's no absolute good and evil with these companies that everybody's pointing fingers at or technology itself. It's a question of sort of knowing yourself and knowing what you need, what your outcomes are, your learning style, your writing, drawing style. Do you, are you typically okay working with inside the box or do you need to work outside of the box? And maybe you need to do work with a tool like, you know, we were talking about where you have a piece of paper and that that will let you bring it into the digital world so you can work outside of that framework and bring it in rather than being restricted by an existing box. It's fascinating to see we're in this sort of intermediate space, but there's so many different opportunities if we know what we need. Right. I think it's so important to assess your needs and then choose the tool that's right. Like there's no good carpenter that only uses a hammer. He has hammers and chisels and he has a variety of tools or she to achieve the goals and they know when to use those and when they don't work, right? You wouldn't go to a job site and try to hammer things with a screwdriver either, right? So it's, I think sometimes we can get locked into our favorite applications or tools and think they can do everything when maybe they're not the most ideal for the situation. And the other thing, the other impression I have, I had this recently was the difference between working on a whiteboard or even a chalkboard or a giant piece of paper and working on a computer is no matter how big your screen is, like you could even have a 65 inch screen that you're working on, let's say, at some point it's got an edge to it, right? And I, I feel like a lot of the work we do, I feel like we're on a boat and we're, we're cruising the ocean, but we're looking at it through the tiny portholes, right? And we, we can't totally see in every direction. It's like maybe maybe you just need to walk out on the deck and look at the ocean rather than looking through this portal, right? Maybe it's spreading out page after page of paper on a big wall where you can move the orientation and connect them and put post-it notes. And like you have this freedom to kind of go in every direction almost to the point that you can't reach things, right? It's maybe there's a height limit, the thing that limits you is your physical body, right? So, and it's uh, it's quite a different experience than when you're looking through the portal. And 
again, I'm very much pro technology. I think it's got benefits. I use a computer myself. I think it's fantastic. But I have also tried to be good at knowing when that that technology runs to its edge and maybe there's a better way and to not be so married to just one tool or a few tools that I force myself to use these imperfect tools to solve something when there's maybe a better, simpler thing like a big sheet of paper that would solve it much better, you know, because I'm open to those ideas. Absolutely. And I'm curious because you, you talk about your own use of technology. You obviously use a computer. We're sitting there having this conversation over Zoom. And, and you have a podcast, which we haven't talked about yet, but we'll get to that. But the other piece is you have, was it three kids? Three kids, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any guidelines or rules around technology in your home to sort of make sure that there's an awareness of how you're using technology and how it's integrated into their lives as well? Yeah, well, I think for the little ones, they're not so attracted to technology. I mean, they are, but we we control that. We have iPads that they use, and uh, we try to maintain time for that and make sure that they're getting playtime where they're not looking at screens or watching TV. So it's a balance. Uh, We have a teenager, so that the things that worked for someone up to about 10, 11, 12, maybe in that range, now kind of are out the window with our teenagers. So that's a new challenge. We're trying to figure out how do we balance this because teenagers are so dependent on their devices and so drawn to this technology. How do we provide a balance? So that's something we're, we're exploring. We're trying to find the balance. And it's not easy. Like anyone who says it's easy is probably lying to you. I mean, we've, we've tried all kinds of different tools to help it. And ultimately, it comes down to hand me the phone. It's time to go to bed, right? Having something as simple as that is a solution where the device is simply out of their hands. Maybe we shut the internet off at night so nobody's tempted. Personally, myself, I felt challenged just doing some reading and listening around my phone sort of invading my bedroom, right, before I go to bed. The idea of blue light, some of the issues around that. But even sort of the idea of my mind getting activated by the things I'm reading on the phone, right, even if it's a book or something. And I just felt like I would. Tr- I wanted to try an experiment. So a couple of weeks ago, I decided to plug my phone in at my desk and then uh, I just go to bed. I actually read a physical book in bed with a more yellow light. It seems to make me, you know, sleepier a little bit faster. And I don't feel this urge when I wake up to immediately go to my phone. I have a little bit of time to go exercise or have a drink of water or look out the window at the sunset or whatever it is. Like I've got this little gap of time. I don't feel so locked in and wanting to get away from using my phone for so many things, right? There's so many things a phone can do. But in some ways, it's problematic. So I actually picked up uh, really inexpensive, uh, like an iPod clone from Amazon. And the reason was, I felt like when I listen to music on my phone to do work, I'm constantly interrupted, whether it's if I'm on Spotify, I've got a, you know, maybe a commercial message or something, or I've got a ding because someone texted me or an email coming in, right? There's always something. And I wanted something that was totally separate from those interruptions. And by having an iPod, that all it does is play music when I plug it in. I can't be interrupted and it's actually working really well, right? So it fits in my pocket, it's portable. So it's uh, sort of this, almost like this perfect amplification or embodiment of certain technology. I feel like there's sort of these certain things like Leica cameras, there's certain Leica cameras that are legendary because they have the right balance of lens and feel and weight, like all those things. I'm always looking for the balance. So this is seems to me like a good balancing point that gets me away from my phone a little bit, provides the music that I want, but it also lets me focus. So I think that's maybe the direction things are going is, again, where is this tool best suited and how can we find ways to use it and then not necessarily be so tied to using phones for everything, even though they could be used for that and sort of fencing them a little bit more than we do. And it's a challenge. It's not easy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a lot of what I work with now in terms of digital well-being is helping people build that self-awareness so that they can institute different boundaries for themselves. Mm -hmm. And whether it's in our house, we have a docking station, and that's where the phones and the iPads go at night. And actually, I'm quite hard to reach at night, although I do have my Apple Watch, and there's certain numbers Mm -hmm. that will still ring through. And and that I use as my alarm clock, but otherwise no other notifications go through my watch. You know, I mean, it's just, you got to do with, do what works for you. I'm not saying that's the ultimate solution. I'm just saying that that's what works well for us. But it also means that once I'm home and I dock my phone, we don't have a house phone. We don't have a house (laughs) phone. So basically once the working hours are over, I'm not reachable unless, you know, if I'm anticipating a call, it's my kids or whatever. You know, I'll see that. Or actually texts actually from my kids. They'll automatically come through in my watch. But I think understanding those things with with teenagers, of course, it is challenging because they've also now in the school systems, technology is so integrated into how they deliver content. It's how they're communicating with their teachers. It's, you know, obviously it's replaced the telephone. You know, they're using that to interact with their friends. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not just a question of like, oh, I'm going to take away your technology. It's like, well, I've still got homework to do. Well, then I, you right. still need your technology. So, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, there, you know, finding that balance. And I think the key is to really teach them the self-awareness of understanding how that technology is impacting their behavior, their sleep patterns, their ability to thrive, essentially. And then once they sort of clue into that, I found that my kids are much better about it when they realize, well, you know what? I don't sleep. I haven't been sleeping very well. And I'm like, well, have you been watching Netflix before bed? You know, in your bed? And they're like, well, you know, it's like, okay, well, maybe try a couple <laughs> nights where you don't do that and see if it makes a difference. And when they see mm-hmm. that contrast, then they make the decision to not do that instead of me right. saying, don't watch Netflix, you know, don't watch your iPad in bed. Self discovery. As a teenager, right? which is basically mm-hmm. like saying, watch your, watch your iPad in bed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the counter. I think um, something I've heard and we haven't tried in our family was the idea of a technology Sabbath. So this idea of, you know, Jews and Christians often will, you know, reserve a day of the week where they rest, right? Maybe Jews even more so. They can be, depending on the sect, very strict about what they can and can't do, like it's very clear for them. Uh, so I've heard about a couple of different people that talk about basically Friday night or the two, you can choose the night you want. Friday night at sundown, everything gets turned off. You know, all the internet gets shut off and we play board games and read books and do things together for that 24-hour period. And I think all the reports that I've heard have been that it sort of changed their life, right? This stepping away actually puts it in more perspective and gives a little bit of relaxation in some ways to your mind. You don't have to worry about something coming through, right? And if it's really important, someone will get to you. They'll find a way to do it, right? You can have those emergency measures, so that's something I've been kicking around now that I've sort of moved the phone out of my bedroom at night. You know, are there ways that I can further sort of get some boundaries around it? So it's under my control. I think ultimately it comes to what's controlling me. Is it me controlling the device or is the device controlling me? And once you realize that you've got the power to make those choices, I think that's the valuable thing. The thing that you're teaching your kids, right? You have the power to turn that thing off. Whether you believe it or not, right? I think the challenge, especially for teenagers, is so much of our identity is so wrapped up in this digital world, right? Whether they're Snapchatting with friends or on Instagram or texting, those things are like integral to the way they, their social lives are, right? It's really, how do you tell someone, like you said, to turn that off, right? It's, you feel like you're cutting yourself off from all your friends and social 
networks, right, of people that you know. So it's really tough, I think, for teenagers. And it's I suspect it's going to be a challenge going forward to sort of find the balance in that. Maybe it'll be things like on my iPhone now, there's a feature that just got turned on. When I drive somewhere, it automatically shuts off communications, right? It's do not disturb. And uh, people get a message that say I'm driving. And oddly enough, I thought it was the silliest thing, but I just left it on to see how you know, I wanted to experiment. And I find it really relaxing. Like I never have to worry about things coming through that are not important. If my wife needs to get through, she's been marked as being able to get to me or my father, right? So the people that if they need to, they could reach me, right? I can pull over and take a phone call. But for the most part, it's frivolous stuff. Like, you know, look at this funny picture or something like, do I really need to see that when I'm driving home? Probably not. So little technology things that can, can put the control back in the user's hands, I think are possibly coming all over the place for us in the future. Absolutely. And, and just to go back a little bit on what you were saying there and taking that sort of technology Sabbath, one of the things that I try to teach in my work is recognizing technology also needs a break. So, you know, your phone, for example, is constantly getting new updates, but they don't fully install. They don't, fu- it's sort of constantly in this sort of one eye half open state if you don't fully shut it down. And a lot of us forget to do that. And, you know, closing apps, it's like you open up your, your smartphone and you've got 20 apps going and you wonder why your battery keeps dying. Taking the time to actually shut everything down, your entire system down, technology-wise, and simultaneously, you know, having an analog experience, an analog moment with the people there that are with you, or even with yourself, whether it's going for a hike and just not being connected to anything, those can really recharge and build an appreciation for what we give, you know, what we need and what we give, but also help us appreciate what the value that the technology is bringing into our lives. So those analog moments and the ability to fully recharge without the notification disruption for sleep or the blue screen or the whatever it is, or having that evening where it's, you know, in, in Sweden, when we were living there, there's, you know, Friday was for Muskvel, which is kind of like you hear about hygge and those are the Danish hygge, but it's basically just, you know, it's about having cozy time with your family and your mm-hmm. friends and sitting down and maybe you're watching a movie together, but maybe, you know, you're doing it together or you're playing a game or you're, but you're just doing something to, to reconnect and reconnect with yourself and reconnect with those that are closest with you. And I think that that, that's something really important to remember for, for all of us. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. We're sure. coming to a close on our time. This has been such a pleasure. We could keep on talking for hours, I feel like, but I, I want to make sure that we have something to talk about next time we reconnect. And for those of you listening, we'll make sure to put all of the links in the show notes so that you can find Mike's work. Mike, do you want to just give us a little wrap up of like how people find you and what you're doing so that they can learn a little bit more if they're curious? Yes. Um, so there's a few places I'm rel- more active than others. So the places that I'm active, if you want to find my books and the things that I write uh, and the newsletter that I send about every month, uh, go to roadesign.com. That captures both of the books. It's got all those resources. You can learn a lot about me and get links to other places there. The two places I'm most active are Twitter and on Instagram. In both places, my handle there is roadesign, R-O-H-D-E-S-I-G-N, same as the website. And then uh, the other place that I am regularly working is Sketchnote Army. And the idea behind Sketchnote Army was 
there was really no central place to find sketch notes of other people's work. You could find it if you did lots of searching and you'd have to dig around and put a lot of work in. And I felt like there should be a central place where you can go and like look around and see what's the breadth of the work that's being done. I want to see first time sketch noters. I want to see experts. I want to see different topics. All that stuff is captured at sketchnotearmy.com. And you mentioned the Sketchnote Army podcast was an experiment uh, I did with the colleague I work with, Mauro Ticelli, a couple of years ago. And we thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we um, did a podcast around these iPad Pros that we just purchased, right? So it started with technology. Like, who is going to listen to a podcast about drawing? Isn't that silly? And we thought, well, let's just do it. So we did a little experiment. We recorded a show. It was really popular. And then I realized, well, it would be really interesting if we interviewed people in the community, because there's many people in the community, and sort of get the story behind the story, right? So you often see the sketches and the sketch notes they do on all the social platforms, but you don't maybe totally understand, like, where are they coming from? Where they, what made them come into this space? What do they like? What are their tools? So we started doing interviews like this, and they're super popular. So we, we just kept going and I've just wrapped season four of the Sketchnote Army podcast and planning on season five coming up sometime in the springtime. And it surprised me. Like it's the sort of the last thing I expected to happen. And I have a blast doing it. It's really fun to interview people. And I think it adds richness to the community. So that's another thing that you can have a look at as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. You're an inspiration to those of us that have visual thinking and want to do something more with it. So I really appreciate your work. And I especially appreciate your joining us today. This has been such a treat. Thank you so much. And for all of you listening, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our new episodes coming up. We've got some great interviews. Some actually, if you look for the one from Gabe Zickerman, he's talking about the Onward app, which might answer some of the questions we've had today. So I look forward to joining you again with the Evolving Digital Self podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.